Hello and welcome to The Two View, the cutting edge educational show for PAs and nurse practitioners in emergency medicine and urgent care. My name is Michael Sharma. I am a practicing emergency medicine and urgent care PA in the Dallas, Texas area and an adjunct professor of PA studies. And hello, I'm Martha Roberts. Hi, Mike. I am a nurse practitioner currently practicing in the ER and teaching as an assistant professor in Northern California. In case anyone is wondering, it has stopped raining in Northern Cali today, but we're due for some more rain. And then I'll be complaining that it'll be 114. So, you know. Well, I'm excited that our two weeks of Texas winter is over and we're moving on to allergy season, also known as spring here in Dallas. Martha, I'm really excited about this podcast for a number of reasons. It's our 25th podcast, our silver anniversary, and I was reading that silver symbolizes radiance and brilliance. And when I think of radiance and brilliance, the person that comes to mind is our guest host for this month. Yes, our oblique view, always a pleasure. We welcome our guest host, Dr. Rick Bucata. We've had Rick on the show many times and the show wouldn't even exist if it wasn't for Rick. We're very happy to have him and his expertise in conversation today. He's not only a medical legal expert, but an incredible educator in so many avenues of emergency medicine. And you know, he's also not just the sage on the stage, he is also the man behind the curtain. He's the director of the Center for Medical Education, the boss man himself. He is the godfather of emergency medicine podcasting and a real silver fox. Hello, Rick, how you doing today? Guys, I can't stand it. I mean, you know, uh, it's like I died or something like, you know. (laughs) I appreciate it so much. I've been looking forward to this um, since I was invited. I do appreciate the opportunity uh, I think that you've been doing a terrific job, and every time I see your script and your notes and your the work that you put into this, it's like really uh, remarkable that you have been so assiduous for 25 times. Well, but in any case, thank uh, you. I'm I, I'm going to just kind of sit here because um, my part of this comes up in about two hours. That's not true. We're going to get <laughs> no. to you very quickly. Yeah, we have a real tight format now. It's going to be real good. Oh, yeah, I see this. one. We got one minute for the next section. That's right. So <laughs> Time us. Let's go. Let's go. And moving on, Rick, you told me something recently, and it was the virtual version of you. that It totally blew my mind. Over 20,000-plus clinicians have attended the original emergency medicine boot camp since you started it up. Is that right? Actually, we just had the numbers checked, and actually it's uh, 21,000. But, yes, it is over 20,000, and I am extraordinarily proud of um, of that. And I'm really proud that you two are uh, parts of it and have been a parts of it for a long time. So um, you add the voice particularly of PAs and NPs, and you do it really, really very well. So I, I'm, I'm in your debt uh, for being a, a good person part of this program another thing that comes in the spring with all the pollen is summer scheduling for your emergency department and urgent care you're working in listeners so every time you hear someone sneeze think to yourself i better block off my july schedule for the boot camp july 23rd and 24th for the procedure ultrasound and pharmacology pre-courses and then july 25th to 28th for the main boot camp www.ccme.org to reserve your spot now. That's www.ccme.org where you can also download the online version if you just cannot wait. 
Well, thank it's you, time thank for- you, thank you. <laughs> it's time for our first segment, uh, The Wet Read, where Martha and I get 60 quick seconds to talk about something that caught our eye. Martha, you go first. I love being able to bounce right in and tell you everything that I want to tell you in 60 seconds or less. It usually ends up being a couple minutes more. But here we go. You already so- burned five seconds right there. <laughs> I had to. I had to do it. So this is an article that was recently published in the Clinical Advisor. I like that website a lot. I like I what they what they produce. And it's by an author named Kristen Delavolpe. I hope I pronounced that correctly, Kristen. It's entitled, quote, we are not okay, say pediatric nurse practitioners. The author starts off by using some phrases that include exhaustion, irritability, anger, dreading work, somatization, and moral distress. So we we already know this is going to be an uplifting article, right? Yeah, well, the, the only way I could get through this one was actually trying to take a break between the paragraphs. Unfortunately, it's not uplifting. Uh, nearly 90% of the practicing pediatric nurse practitioners report professional burnout, according to a recent survey done by the National Association of Pediatric Nurse Practitioners, or what we call NAPNAP. This was a national conference last week in Orlando, Florida. They do it every year. It's not surprising that we're reading such data, but what was surprising to me were a few of the personal comments that were more specific about the types of burnout we're experiencing. Some of those statements include things such as, quote, I have never felt so burnout in my life, end quote. Also, quote, I feel like I'm on edge all the time, always waiting for the next shoe to drop. Sometimes it's just hard to breathe. And then finally, someone uh, said something that really got me, quote, my self-care is non-existent. I have no work-life balance. I'm stressed, burned out, exhausted, and there's no end in sight. Absolutely appalling, really. Towards the end of this piece, a quote that suggested that a practitioner had given up all hope. I want you to think about that for a second. All hope? One of the other more astounding pieces of clinical information here was a key concern identified by 94% of respondents last year that were concerned about our patients' mental health and their behavioral health. We all know that mental health has been, well, a concern for many decades, and there are some new concerns related to COVID that has prevented actually our youth from getting the things that they need. The pediatric patients, they're not getting the basic health care checkups or vaccinations. And the ripple effect of COVID has continued to delay well-child visits. And of 90% of the respondents in this survey also suggested that misinformation about COVID is one of the leading barriers to clinical practice. Uh, it truly is. The article did suggest, though, there is a glimmer of hope. There is. And that's that we're going to utilize telehealth more. And that may help us connect more personally with our patients. Yeah, that all hope phrase is really concerning. I mean, that's kind of one of the questions you ask on the PHQ-9 when you're doing depression screening. Do you feel a sense of hopelessness? Uh, Pediatricians seem to also be uh, feeling it as well right now. Um, There is an article in Medscape we'll link to on the website. As always, that is twoview.fireside.fm. That's the number, twoview.fireside.fm. This article is from Medscape entitled, Pediatricians, we can't bear the burden of teen angst or 
angst, if you like the Germanic pronunciation there. But yeah, a lot of pediatricians and pediatrics practitioners, I imagine pediatric PAs as well, are really feeling um, and maybe taking on some, uh, what's the phrase here, uh, counter-transference from all the stress going uh, on in their pediatric patients. So really troubling findings there. All right. Well, I'm going to have my 60 seconds here to talk about. Oh, go ahead, Rick. Well, you got be, something? Before we move on to something uplifting. Um, <laughs> like tasers. Like tasers, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I should tell you that I believe that these jobs are not going to get fixed. The only fix to these jobs is fixing yourself. Um, and I do have sympathy. I really do. Uh, and, you know, I've. I've physically been there, so I, I understand, maybe not to the degree that there is <clears throat> a problem now, but we have a new course, honestly, called Flourishing in Medicine, and it's done by two experts in mindfulness, and it's about six hours or seven hours. They basically have these courses where you go live, and they have like about 30 people, not a, not a lot, and it's several days, and these people are really into um mindfulness and trying to get healthcare people to uh, view their uh, occupations and their lives um, from a different point of view. And given the fact that your job is not going to change, you can hope all you want, but the fact of the matter is it's really not. Uh, I think that basically the only ch choice is to try to work on how you perceive your job and how you perceive um, the stresses that you have. Because I would think that pediatricians and, and nurse practitioners in pediatrics, there's very few kids who are really sick. Kids are fun and, and cute and, and, and generally happy. Uh, well baby checkups are about well babies. And it's kind of like, you know, they don't work nights, they don't work weekends kind of thing. You know, your life could be a, a lot more miserable. Yeah, but you know um, who brings in kids is those parents. Those are yes. awful, golly. Yes. Like that. <laughs> I said, the, the kids invariably come with a parent or two, and that's just the worst. Oh, the parents, the, the parents, the patient. <laughs> yeah, they're all patients, right? Yeah, you have to, you're treating the parent and, and the child, too, for sure. And sometimes you're, it's more of the parent than anything else. Well, I, I'm surprised because I kind of viewed pediatrics as a joyful specialty. Well, right now, Rick, it's absolutely not. And that is absolutely evidenced by our recent national conference. I mean, we are all feeling very much uh, hopeless. I, I think that I'm doing a little bit better, but you're right. The clinician does need to kind of grab life here by the reins and take control. And we require mindfulness as a part of our ABSN undergraduate program as well for nurses. Really? And mm -hmm, we have a required course that we do. And uh, that's very important to us that we make sure the students attend. And people think that they don't need to learn how to be mindful, that they don't need to learn these specific uh, relaxation techniques or something else, but you do. Someone needs to help you understand how to do it. And then it's almost like a light bulb goes off and oh, I wish I had more light bulbs to make me look less like Casper tonight, but you know, I digress. Yeah. You know, I think it's great. You paused here, Rick. I think it's, it's a, obviously an important topic. We hear numbers of, you know, burnout and, and uh, people leaving the health professions seem to be on the rise. 
Uh, and I, I almost feel like the M, it's becoming the M word, like mindfulness. Like, you know, people see it as like a, a bad word. You hear about a, a module about mindfulness coming up and you just go like, oh my gosh, like not again. But it, it, look, it's it's got to be something like, call it whatever you want to call it, whether it's a mindfulness or self-regulation or something. But um, the, the clinician has to take an active role in their... Uh, coping with the job, but the, the job is not going to care about you any more than you care about yourself. You, you're going to have to take responsibility for for your own um, wellness. And I'm not saying that to blame any of the respondents to the NAPNAP survey. Perhaps maybe the best uh, acronym for any uh, medical organization is NAPNAP. It's pretty great. But yeah, I mean, there, to some degree, without blaming anybody who is suffering right now, and, and I agree, I've suffered as well um, over the past couple of years. It comes kind of in waves off and on. Um, there has to be some degree of, of self-ownership uh, with the issue. Right. Well, <clears throat> Mike, moving on to if you can't make this happen for yourself, maybe you just need a little tap from a taser to get you up and alert. Right. Yeah. Like it's better than a, a glass of coffee. You know, plevis models of tasers employ a one piece probe that we can usually just pull straight out of a patient's skin. Let me introduce you to the new Taser 7, which has a two piece probe. And uh, we'll have links to pictures of those devices on the website. Because of the two piece design, if you just grab this barrel shaped probe body that's sitting on top of the patient's skin, you might separate it from the barbed probe shaft and lose the shaft and the patient's skin, you get zero cool points for doing that. Taser 7 operators should have a probe removal device that is a lot like some of these tick removal devices that some of you in New England states may be uh, used to seeing here. Basically, it allows you to lift the, the probe out of the skin. It's designed to make that job easier. So make sure you ask for it from whoever did the tasing. If you see a barrel-shaped probe body, don't be afraid to phone a friend as well. Sometimes probe shafts can deform under the skin surface if they hit something hard like a bone, or the probe shafts can strike important anatomy like vessels, nerves, the genitals, the eyes, involve the appropriate specialist if the probe is difficult to remove or may have caused a critical injury to one of those structures I mentioned. More about the medical implications of the Taser 7, including lots of great pictures, can be found in this February's issue of the Emergency Medicine Journal. In the show notes, we'll link to that article and another article about the general workup of patients injured by tasers. I know, Martha, you were really passionate about uh, taser care here. Yeah, actually, you know, that resident, that urology resident is just dying to get that call from you that says, <laughs> I got a taser in the penis. I need you here now. You're right? not going to believe this. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, I mean, really, these are the things that we live for, unfortunately. But, you know, Mike, tasers are truly next level injuries, in my opinion, and they can go hor horribly wrong when used. And there should be some consideration that these are very scary and they're a potentially deadly weapon. I actually want to quickly just give a shout out to one of my favorite textbooks uh, by Walther's Clore, which is the five-minute console. I've been using it for years. This text has a lot of um, ebooks and other algorithms and pathways you can use. It breaks down the injury, the disease, the diagnosis, everything for the clinician in just one to two pages. That's, that's the way my brain works. Great for ADD minds and ER busy folks. So the five-minute console has a few pages on, uh, pages on tasers, 
and a reference clinical site online, which correlates with text. Uh, so I want to go through some of the horrible things that can go wrong. You already mentioned a few of them, the skin effects, the burns, the marks, the ocular injuries to the globe, musculoskeletal issues, fractures from falls, including documented vertebral compression fractures that have been reported as a result of taser discharge, strains, sprains, a case of rhabdomyolysis that was documented in the literature with, with repeated prolonged use, Though that could have also come from an underlying other thing like excited uh, delirium, but interesting to read the studies. And then the idea that it can cause V-fib arrest, you know, it hits the right part of the cardiac cycle. Okay, maybe it can, but a case of atrial fibrillation is the only thing that's really been reported as uh, an arrhythmia uh, related to taser use. It's really unclear how the device would work with a pacemaker um, or AICDs. The energy is low and theoretically should not cause damage, according to the literature as well. But could it cause an AICD to deliver a shock if electrical activity is misinterpreted as a dysrhythmia? I don't know. This is all really interesting stuff for exploration. But yeah, nervous system injuries as well. Um, there have been cases of seizures afterwards. And finally, maybe we can actually rest easy, uh, that we can actually still breathe. So respiratory effect, effects, initial concerns that taser, tasers would disrupt the ventilation actually proved to be unfounded. And research has shown that subjects actually increase ventilation during an application. So we have that. Rick, tell us about the last time you got tased. <laughs> well, it was just last Tuesday, as a matter of fact, you know? <laughs> yeah. Um, you do live in L.A. <laughs> is there anything in Robertson Hedges about this phenomenon? Yes, as a matter of fact, uh, Jim There's Robertson... two or three chapters probably on it. Yes, he was very much obsessed with tasers, having been tased himself multiple times and hogtied while it was happening. He put himself in these scenarios, and I have it all on video, should we want to recount all that. They really do want you to pay extras for those second sauce packets at McDonald's. Otherwise, they're coming after you. <laughs> All right, so now it's time for our dry scan, our segment two, where we penetrate a little deeper into some other topics without a taser. All right, well, we've all been there. We're plugging away on a shift, maybe even mid-sentence in conversation with someone. When someone shoves an EKG in front of our face and says, hey, read this. Mastery of critical EKGs is a core competency of our specialty, and it's not only textbook lethal arrhythmias and STEMIs that we have to catch. There are also many STEMI equivalents, EKG findings that, in the right context, should be treated the same as STEMIs with emergent cardiology consultation and consideration for cath activation, or if you're not in a hospital, by activating the EMS system and getting the patient to a hospital if you're in an urgent care clinic. Uh, among these named STEMI equivalents is hyperacute T waves. These are briefly described as broad asymmetric T waves that may be seen early in the course of an ST elevation myocardial infarction. The question posed by a study published in the February 2023 issue of the Annals of Emergency Medicine was this, is measuring the height of the T wave above the baseline the best way to recognize hyperacute T waves from all the other T wave variants out there. This was a prospective multicenter study of over 2,400 patients with acute chest pain. Reading the results at first, uh, this seems like a negative study, but there are still some great pearls to be found here. Now, in most leads, T wave amplitudes were higher than for patients who did not end up having MIs when comparing them to the EKGs of patients who actually had 
MIs. There were three important exemptions, leads three, AVR, and V1. Now, these leads normally have inverted T waves. So just having any sort of upright T wave in those leads could represent hyperacute T waves, again, in the right clinical presentation, and thus be a potential STEMI equivalent. The takeaway finding is this. For hyperacute T waves, don't just look for big T waves. They're not just tall. They're often broad. They are usually not peaked like the hyperkalemia T waves we think about, and they should be in multiple contiguous chest leads. Shape, as well as comparison to their adjacent QRS complex, is more important than just height. Uh, Amo Matu is an expert physician in emergency cardiology, and by the way, the leader of CCME's The Heart Course, one of the courses that we host that focuses on all things cardiovascular, he's known to say, that you should be concerned about hyperacute T waves if the associated QRS complex can fit inside the T wave you're thinking about. So a little visual pearl there. Yeah, Mike, in addition uh, to a link to this study, we're going to drop a link on our website that is critical knowledge. This is basically a list of officially recognized 2022 equivalents for STEMI and coronary ischemia from the American College of Cardiology. The official title is not quite as exciting. It's the 2022 ACC Expert Consensus Decision Pathway on the Evaluation and Disposition of Acute Chest Pain in the Emergency Department. Terrible title. They should have had a snappy uh, acronym. You know, like a lot of these uh, big studies have snappy acronyms like panoramic and stuff like that. So, yeah, really a missed opportunity there for ACC. Do better, ACC. Or, or, they, or they could have just said, like, things to not kill your patient. Ba -ba right, exactly. <laughs> well, you know, Martha and Rick, to spend a little more time on hyperacute T waves, again, these are what you see when you get the EKG at the very start of someone's myocardial infarction, you're seeing the car crash start to happen. But maybe the EKG is not quite clear or you're getting pushback from other clinicians, maybe even the cardiologist. Something you can do is repeat the EKG. If an MI is actually happening, you're going to see some dynamic EKG changes. How long do y'all like to wait to repeat an EKG in this situation? And what are you looking for to, to, as far as changes in the EKG? For however long it takes the nurse to get the laboratory test done. Okay. So, so, but seriously, like five to 10 we, minutes. So that quickly, like five or 10 minutes, like mm -hmm. you get the EKG and you basically tell the nurse, turn back around, go in there and like hit it again. Yep. Okay. Rick, your thoughts on this? Well, I think that's a little, little aggressive, but to tell you the truth, I mean, just continuously take it then, you know, that'd be ideal if that was the case. No, I think that, um, it really matters if is there ongoing chest pain, if there's ongoing chest pain and you're, EKG doesn't look like it's a a, a, a clear-cut STEMI, but it may be an NSTEMI, you're not really sure kind of thing. Ongoing chest pain is kind of definitely one of those things where I would I would um, get another EKG pronto, quicko. Uh, but I think about this T-wave business, this is part of a broader concept uh, about the OMIs and the NOMIs. And, right. Um, in our course this year, we have a course called Acute um, Emergency Medicine Acute Care. There are two lectures. One of them is on explaining what the difference between an OMI and an OMI is versus an NSTEMI and versus a STEMI. The idea is that NSTEMI and STEMI are dated now. Goodbye. Yeah. The fact is that about oh, uh, maybe about 25% of 
uh, and STEMIs are really occlusive events right then, which need to go to the cath lab. And, and I always wondered why NSTEMIs had a higher mortality than STEMIs. And, and it appears the reason is that for the last umpteen years, we've missed 25% of the uh, uh, coronary occlusions and the average time for them to get their um, angiogram and all that other stuff is hours uh, away from when they walked in the door. So, and it's not something that we can, you know, kind of go through quickly here, except in this, in the lecture that relates to the EKGs, there are seven EKG findings that are consistent with a, an, a, a occlusive myocardial infarction that uh, may, be, may be brewing, where in fact the, um, the troponin may be up, but the EKG is not kind of helping you out a lot. And unfortunately, I think that all the EKGs are going to be, need to be reprogrammed to identify these seven because they're quite subtle. I mean, and, and if you want to learn how to do them, you're going to have to spend a fair amount of time uh, uh, putting these into your head before it's just easy, stemming and, and stemming kind of thing. But, but it's getting more complicated. And I think it's really important because this is a substantial number of patients who are not getting the rapid um, intervention that they need. And it's like, how, how, how come this is, coming upon us in 2023 um just now so the idea is we used to have um you know uh, uh we've had a generation of terms for mis and and uh and 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 stemmies and and there was other there's others you remember what they called other mis i um, i'm blocking them but there used to be uh go on help me out don't make me look too stupid here we're not as old as you. Uh, we don't <laughs> okay. know these uh, names. No, nobody is old as me. I'm the oldest person I know. <laughs> in, in any case, um, this is a topic that uh, frontline clinicians need to get on. It's not a fun topic, but it is an, a really important topic. So that's why we have two half hours devoted to this um, new interpretation of an occlusive myocardial infarction versus a non-occlusive myocardial infarction, OMI versus NOMI. Very important stuff, absolutely. I think what would make it really great is for you to learn this material and go back and and truly not only help a patient and and do good for someone, but you know maybe impress one of your colleagues and be like, hey, I didn't know you knew that, but you do? Maybe I can spread the word. So better care for all. Yeah, this is definitely a thing that's within our grasp as PAs and NPs interpreting EKGs at the expert level. Well, lastly, it's our oral contrast segment where we get into all the nooks and crannies of a topic. And Martha, I know you're very passionate about um, the issues you're going to raise here. I'm rolling my eyes because I really, truly, I'm just feeling really overwhelmed right now by the DEA and it's hard to follow. And honestly, sometimes I just... I wish I could get someone from the DEA on the phone so I can ask them some of these very straightforward questions. They put a lot of information out there, which we're going to go through right now. And I know Rick has a lot to say about that. Wait a um, minute. Are we talking about oral contrast? 
Well, that's 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 the segment. That's what's like you know. It's a snappy like you know. It's a the podcast is called the Two I, I View. Thought I, I thought I got lost there somewhere. <laughs> you no, did. That, he did just prove his age. It's okay. <laughs> yeah, it's just the name of our our of our, our segment. It's yes. You know, oh, then oral, the segment is called Oral Contract. The segment is called. Yeah, we didn't send oh, you the, uh, right, the pre memo here. I'm sorry. I'm yeah. sorry. You know. Because yes. like an oral contrast CT scan takes a long time, right? You got to prep and whatever else here. So this I is our... all ta- I was set to talk about oral contrast. You know. Well, I mean, <laughs> we is... can. It is important because you don't know... use it. <laughs> yeah, right. There you go. Perfect. Done. Great. Perfect. Perfect. Okay. So let's talk about the DEA here. So yes, again, I want to spend a, a bit of a time about this segment, diving deep into this important topic that we know practitioners and clinicians that are prescribing. It's not just physicians, nurse practitioners, PAs. All these new rules, information coming from the DEA, really in the last few months, more emails, more alerts. And these include e-prescribing, removal of the X waiver certifications, and the telehealth rules for outpatients. So we've brought this to your attention before in previous podcasts. I want to reiterate the importance of renewing your DEA and also understanding the laws and practices and guidelines behind doing that. So remember, if you have a DEA that's paid for by your hospital, you're gonna need to follow those guidelines of prescriptive authority of the hospital. That is to say, if you wanna write a personal prescription, have a side telehealth business, or even make a phone call for a friend, this could really be against your hospital policy. It's not a three strikes you're out kind of policy either. It's a one strike and you are out. This isn't just limited to controlled substances, and you need to check on these rules and regulations in your practice group. If you pay for your DEA personally, you are responsible for your own DEA license, but that also involves paying for it. So right now, the fee for renewal for nurse practitioners is $888. And I know this because I just did it last week. In addition, if you pay for your DEA personally, the DEA automatically assumes the right to search and seize your house at any time, your personal residence, if they feel fit, if you're using that home address as your contact information where you ship the DEA. If you want to keep things safe, clean, and without drama, it is suggested that you follow any rule that the hospital has that you work for, and then regulate the renewal service of your DEA through them. Unless, of course, you are per diem like me and you might have to pay for it on your own. I should probably take the DEA off of my block list for my email account. I'm missing a lot of these emails. Uh, <laughs> we also want to address some changes that have occurred in regards to electronic prescriptions, e-prescribing. Although some states have different rules, regulations, and practices, as well as different you know, prescription authority for clinicians. Generally, the consensus is that no prescription can be written for a patient on a prescription pad anymore or by calling into the pharmacy. Most pharmacies are being really pushed to only accept electronic prescriptions. Now, in prior podcasts, we have discussed that there are some circumstances that allow you to get around this rule. But if you try to call your neighbor in some Motrin or ibuprofen 600 milligram tablets or metoprolol refill recently, you've noticed that maybe the pharmacist isn't accepting that call anymore depending on you know where you live or what pharmacy chain you're calling yeah and according to the dea rules mike quote a healthcare practitioner who issues a prescription for a controlled substance but does not transmit the prescription as an electronic data transmission prescription shall document the reason in the patient's medical record as soon as possible within 72 hours of the end of the technological or electrical failure that prevented that e-transmission of that prescription to go through. 
I recall, um, Rick, that we've been on stage before, uh, all of us, and we've talked about, you know, thoughts in terms of prescribers who want to prescribe for friends, for families, or for neighbors outside of the contest of your typical practice setting, like in the ER or the urgent care, just kind of like, you know, you meet at the fence line here and, you know, like a, a home improvement, you know, Wilson sticks his head over the, the fence and says, hey, neighbor, you know, sure could use a, a refill <laughs> on my naproxen, you know. Or, or so, some morphine, uh, 15 milligram tabs. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, the, the, they didn't send in my MS content prescription again, like how sloppy. <laughs> okay, well, well, so how does this new electronic prescriber rule affect clinicians, I guess, number one? Um, who want to do that, just kind of prescribe at your fence line of your property? Or number two, how does it affect someone who doesn't even actively work in a hospital? Like, you know, you, uh, you know, I think you maintain your DEA, but you don't have an active clinical role in a hospital, as far as I understand. Where do you find yourself with all these changes? I don't have any uh, problem prescribing um, non-opiate, non-DEA products for uh, friends, uh, this this idea of never, ever, never, don't do it. It's a bad idea, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, you could get sued. You're not covered by insurance. It's, um, I think that most of that is crap. And uh, it's, it's really um, cruel to say go to the urgent care to get that uh, pre- uh, prescription. So that urgent care visit is going to cost about $160 on average to go in the door. Or maybe if a refill, maybe maybe it's a hundred dollars, and then you're gonna uh, and they're gonna sit there a, a while, kind of thing, and uh, then you're you're earning that prescription for Benadryl or whatever ridiculous thing you're uh, ordering anyway, and then you have to go to pharmacy, and they, well, they have to send that over to the pharmacy because you're not allowed to touch any paper anymore because you know this drug may kill kill somebody. I think that um, I think that. It's really great that we're talking about telemedicine. What is telemedicine? They're allowed to prescribe all this stuff now. Um, level, um, is it uh, DEA three and above? Well, you're skipping. Of- you're skipping ahead to our next question. Okay. Well, the point is, when you do telemedicine, uh, telemedicine could be telemedicine over the telephone. You don't have to physically see them. Right. Now, well, you- the DEA has rules for that too. So. You know, Rick, uh, I'm going to do it. I'm, if somebody calls me up and says that one of my friends mm-hmm. uh, who, who says it hurts when I pee and I'm peeing th- uh, 20 times an hour and I don't have a fever and I don't have any back pain kind of thing. And I and I get this every uh, six months kind of thing from whatever uh, they're going to get their back trim or uh, whatever is the, the dr- drug du, du jour. Um from me. Okay. okay, but what about these? Send them there to this horror, you know, you want to go to the ER? Forget it. That's fine. And I don't disagree with you there. I think that that's totally acceptable. But the DEA here is not just limiting this to opioids. They are suggesting to implement that any prescription really, truly needs to be prescribed. And so um, it's something to think about because this may be taken away from you. All rights, all rights to Bactrim and Motrin. That's kind of absurd. Well, it's the way it's going. What about all of us doctors who don't have um, practices, but I'm paying my money for that DEA thing, damn it, and I'm going to use it. Uh, When I I look at the uh, number of prescriptions I write on and based on how much a DEA costs, it costs me about $40 to write a prescription. Okay, well, let me- amortize the cost of the DEA over the three years and the number of prescriptions I write. 
let me focus on that for a second, because just recently I had to apply for an exception. So I write less than, uh, excuse me, fewer than a hundred prescriptions out of the hospital a year. So if I go to the website, I have to fill out a form to ask for permission to be able to not have to electronically prescribe. I was just recently approved. So that is something that you do have to ask. Well, you need to write more prescriptions, obviously. <laughs> right. Those are I mean, rookie I, numbers. You're going to pump that up here. Yeah, exactly. Oh, boy. All right. More, well, more amoxicillin. Well, so you mentioned telemedicine. So back in February, actually, Rick, the DEA announced proposed rules for permanent telemedicine flexibilities, where the DEA extended many telemedicine rules during the COVID-19 pandemic and appropriate safeguards. So one of the topics of conversation here were that controlled medications could be prescribed via telemedicine. So clinicians could prescribe controlled substances to a patient if they had already seen the patient as a, uh, done a physical exam at some point in their life as a patient with them, right? Okay, no problem. But given the circumstances of COVID-19, there are a lot of patients that were coming in, making this more difficult, coming in meaning for telemedicine, not presenting for a physical exam. And therefore the DE, DEA said, okay, listen, it suggests that the patient may receive a 30-day supply, very specific 30 here, 30-day supply of Schedule 3 through 5 medications or 30-day supply of buprenorphine in the treatment of opioid use disorder without an in-person evaluation ever or referral from a prescribing practitioner. So this rule doesn't include Schedule 2 narcotics, just FYI. Yeah, I feel yeah but like it also this... includes uh, uh, cedar with codeine. Mm-hmm. And some three. people like coding, you know, some people don't, but others, depending on how you metabolize this stuff, are very fond of coding. Tramadol sure as well, right? Tramadol is a three. Sure, tram tramadol. Yeah, tramadol. Tramadol. Crap, yeah. you know, a, whatever. A, an addictive seizure-causing drug. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we acknowledge that telehealth is helpful in a lot of ways, and I think the DEA is kind of making some concessions for that, and they want to kind of expand their rule sets into the telehealth realm. Um, so I guess what right now, Martha, clinicians can prescribe schedule two through five without that physical exam. That's kind of three. like three through three, five. three through five. Okay. So gotcha. No Percodan, no Vicodin, no good stuff. So that, that new rule you mentioned is in effect, like it's already going. It's a, is that yep, right? Yep. 100%. Okay. Mm -hmm. So um, I guess, Rick, my question to you, like, what are your thoughts on foregoing a legit physical exam? You know, like you're, you only can get so much by looking at somebody over the, the telehealth monitor and, and watching how well they move their body and stuff. Um, do you what do you think about foregoing the physical exam if you're able to do that? Good thing, bad thing, just, a, you know, kind of a, a modern way of doing um, the business of medicine. And do you think this should extend into allowing Schedule 2s? So I guess first question is this, thoughts on uh, controlled substances without the physical exam in person? Well, I have trouble with pretty much any prescription and telemedicine I thought you had to do this history and physical, and, and uh, that's the last I heard when I was in medical school 50 years ago. So <laughs> that's history, true. History and physical, history and physical. Well, what kind of physical can you do over the over uh, a monitor? You know, only if you have some kind of musculoskeletal thing. I can't get do. I can't do this doc. You know, you know maybe that would be considered a physical exam. But my baby has a fever. You want to do? Want to try that one? Um, I honestly don't know how telemedicine works i think um 
I'm, it's obviously not going to be the popular view. How do you know what to prescribe reasonably if you can't do an exam of a, of a person? Is this a, is this a business where, you know, uh, febrile children get, how do you understand what's going on with febrile children without examining them? We all have children. We all know that they need to be examined. And, you know, to say, well, Johnny's pulling his ear again. Well, pulling your ears really got nothing to do with whether you have a notitis media or not, for crying out loud. You know, it's like, well, he's got a fever. Must be his uh, throat. Well, you, you know, I think I may see some white spots back there. Well, this let me ask a, you a question. Blind leading the blinder. Rick, what if someone had called you and said, hey, I need a prescription for a UTI and maybe I have gonorrhea. Are you doing a pelvic exam on that female over the telehealth? I know I the mean, person who's asking me. Oh, I know the person who's asking me. So what? I mean, that they seems like a lot of bias. They don't do those kind of things. Well, I'm just <laughs> telling you, I'm being devil's advocate here, that you're saying no, that these I people need. Yeah, it was like if you don't get better, uh, you'll, you'll need to follow up with a real doctor kind of thing. <laughs> no, but I, I think that I don't understand telemedicine. Honestly, doctors are on the beach in Cancun talking to somebody in Detroit about some kind of medical problem. And all right, I'll, I'll send I'll, I'll call in a prescription for you. You know what's, you know what's fascinating, Rick, is that at Jefferson, they originally when they started their telemedicine, the telemedicine group was across the street from the ER, and the and the physicians were literally like within the same block. They just weren't in the same building, and so they were trying to make this telemedicine work where they were just inundated with patients and they just needed more providers, but they didn't need physical bodies. They just needed people to consult and triage and things like that. So, I mean, yes, we've taken it to Cancun and wherever else people want to go to vacation Halfway around the world. Right. Sure. But I mean, an expert like you or anyone else in the fields, I mean, how I much don't is feel that comfortable with it? Honestly, what's wrong with maybe having a telehealth with maybe a nurse doing, you know, your, your uh, listening and your feeling for you, maybe dispersing a nurse to uh, an onsite um clinical evaluation and then well then they should be a nurse practitioner and do it by themselves <laughs> I, I don't see it i don't see it and i i wish somebody could explain it to me in in a way that i could say oh i got it um <laughs> mike you want to try mike do you do telehealth i actually do um out of my urgent care well we help do... me out will you <laughs> i'm suffering here here's the hard part i just think it takes a real <sighs> gentle but firm hand because you've got to tell people like and also it takes a really strong clinician as well i don't think like just like urgent care is the wrong place for somebody just like starting out uh in you know being a pa or np in my opinion unless you have a really strong onboarding program i don't think you can just put just anybody in the telehealth role and expect high quality medicine because just just straight up diagnosing somebody that's hard enough over telemedicine but but here's the really hard part telling somebody they've got a virus and they need to go to the pharmacy and get you them robitussin and and guaifenesin instead of a prescription you know like the you're not going to prescribe anything for me i, I think just paid 50 bucks for this uh, this visit with you <laughs> exactly. i earned that prescription damn it so I, I, you know, what I find myself doing is kind of giving concessions in a way to say, 
Oh, well, look, you know, right now uh, you've had some facial pressure for, you know, 48 hours. I know you're concerned about your sinuses and having a acute bacterial rhinosinusitis, but, you know, right now it doesn't suggest that we need to expose you to the risks of antibiotics. I'm worried about the harms I could give you. Let's try these things over here. But tell you what, if you're still feeling terrible in a week, I give you full license, just call the clinic back and we'll consider putting a prescription off of this one visit. Um, so you're not having to pay a second visit to get those antibiotics, but for right now, we're going to hold off. So it's these kind of like out-of-the-box ways where you're giving the patient some perceived value, but also not just uh, firing off, you know, uh, antibiotic prescriptions like a shotgun. Well, but, but Mike, my symptoms have gotten worse and so this now entitles me to the antibiotic where the fact of the matter is is that your patient has gotten worse and maybe now it is something more significant um i think that i have a i think you i think you can give assurance you know it really sounds like a virus ma'am and i think that based on you know what's going around i think that this is a reasonable thing to do at this time so, or, or, you know, reassurance for, for back pain, musculoskeletal back pain. Um, but to tell you the truth, it doesn't matter what you do with back pain. It's going to get better. You know, it's, it doesn't matter what you do. Unless with it sinusitis. doesn't. Right, it all gets better unless it doesn't. Exactly. Yeah. So it's kind of like, it's, 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 does it really matter what you tell them about back pain? You know, except don't stay in bed for three weeks. Okay. But, but uh, there's a whole industry now. And there are a ton more telehealth visits than there used to be. So people are starting to like this stuff. And um, I have a fundamental kind of pro problem with it. Although I must admit, you know, when you talk about um, giving temporizing advice or, um, you know, just symptomatic advice, I guess that's okay. I guess that's what you're going to get if you go to the urgent care center or if you go to your doctor's office, you're going to get the same you know, advice or back pain that doesn't matter. But you know that a fledging telehealth practice um, who is not in the, you know, business of sending out a bunch of prescriptions is not going to be in business for very long. I think there is kind of like oh, a, God, an expectation yes. here from patients who call right. in to get that prescription, like you said. So uh, it's it's a difficult line to walk. I'd love to see the study. And maybe there's been one already because it seems like it's low-hanging fruit. To look at the rate of prescription uh, prescriptions for uh, telehealth, although the problem with that is we give out so many prescriptions at the urgent care center that comparing the two is basically irrelevant because they're both ridiculously high. Well, that's what I was going to say. Honestly, I was literally going to say that uh, I bet it's going to be a wash. <laughs> I <laughs> yes. bet. All like right. yes. <laughs> now I'm feeling hopeless. Okay, this is is like where do we go? Let me let me finalize one of these questions here. Finally, the the substance abuse and mental health services administration they recently removed the X waiver. I really want to talk about that. So talking about prescribing here, we've already said that we can give patients bup. They don't need to have a physical exam even, which I think is a mistake, especially for these people that could potentially going into really severe withdrawal. But they have removed the X waiver requirement for clinicians and no physical exam is needed to prescribe. As we know, practitioners, they were required to send um, or submit a notice of intent and have this waiver, right? To do the buprenorphine and 
for that was for the treatment of opioid use disorder, but all practitioners who have a current DEA registration, that includes Schedule Three authority, may now prescribe um, buprenorphine for opioid use disorder in their practice. Um, look at some state laws for a little minute details. But in addition to the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, they actually encourage, they wrote those words, we encourage you to do so. That ties along with these new DEA rules. No in-person exam is needed. I reiterate, a red flag, huge mistake. I, I really don't like it. But Rick, we wanted to ask you your thoughts on prescribing BUP to patients without this initial training that the X waiver once provided, and then also prescribing it to patients without that in-personal exam. What are some legal ramifications we should consider? Well, I think that there are, uh, when you prescribe something, it needs to be done with a good faith uh, examination, whatever whatever that means kind of thing. But um, you have to have reasonable justification but with every medicine particularly this this is our narcotic it's the kind of thing and there are there are you know risks of side effects which can occur but on the other hand i know that it was so absurd the eight, eight hour course for to, to to prescribe this thing and now it's a schedule three drug it's like anybody can do it they went from treating this drug so religiously, it was so important that you learn how to use it. And now anybody can use it. There was nothing in the middle kind of thing. Um, so do I need, do you need to do a physical exam on the person? I'd sure like to, mm -hmm. <laughs> but, but if that's not a reasonable thing to do, I'd rather keep you out of withdrawal than have you, you know, not be able to get this because I think there there were, were over a hundred thousand deaths this year. It was kind of interesting that during the, the pandemic that the deaths started out around seventy thousand, most of them due to opiates, and really nobody paid attention because the, the pandemic was so bad. There was that was on the news every day, and nobody noticed that this thing was just going the the graph was just going off the chart. So now there are a hundred thousand. So I think that this is a real emergency. And in emergency situations, you're allowed to do some things that you would not ideally do in all circumstances. Good argument, good argument. And I know a lot of people that have personally benefited from that medication. Um, friends I do too. And, yeah, friends and family, certainly, and, mm -hmm. and patients, absolutely. So it's a, it, it is a medication. I mean, there's it's something useful that we can do and it will help mitigate some of these really concerning side effects that you could experience. So. I think net good should far exceed net bad. Because oh. I think physicians who don't know how to use buprenorphine will learn because it's like, otherwise they're like flying by the seat of their pants a little bit. But I don't think it's really hard to learn. And the people that took the X-Wave course like you, Martha, I think that my understanding is that you learned a lot of stuff in that eight yep. hours. Absolutely. But I would have probably learned the same amount of material in like an hour and a half, but that's cool. You know, the my own team ties. The government is really good about that. Taking a uh, hour and a half material and cramming it into eight hours. <laughs> <laughs> Woohoo. All right. Well, Rick, I can't thank you enough for having you on the show tonight. Is it time I for me to leave? Uh, well, it's time for all of us to go to bed. Um, we are actually working. In, I'm working in the ER tomorrow. 
And I know Mike is coming off a shift or you said you were doing the dishes. I don't know which was worse. I'm I'm going tomorrow as well. Yeah, I got a shift tomorrow morning. And uh, I have a very, very difficult population um, with 50 to 75 people in the waiting room every day. So I need to go to bed. That's encouraging. mm -hmm. You're entitled to be depressed (laughs) going to something like that. Martha, it's never going to get better. I know. I know. But luckily, I'm going to Sonoma uh, to do a little vacation for my birthday. So there we go. I'm taking care of myself. That's That's what I'm doing. You know, I'm going to try to calculate now (laughs) because I've known you since you were probably an embryo. That's right. That's right. You really have. Mm -hmm. Okay, guys, this is a lot of fun. You know, next time, can I suggest that we talk about or not, not I have to be invited, but the idea of these um, eight hour class for all the DEA people coming. Well, as a matter of fact, Rick, I sent you a proposal for a new CCME course, which I hope we can adopt and put on as one of our new special events. We can talk about that. <laughs> well, Thanks, to end, guys. thank you so much, Rick. To end our show today, we're going to do our two-part trivia question from our last episode. We talked about witch hazel in the hemorrhoid segment. I mean, you missed a really good one there, Rick. Witch hazel has nothing to do with witches, as we know, and I'm just as shocked as you are here. But the trivia question was this: um, from which <laughs> witch? Get it? From which language does the witch part of witch hazel originate? And what? was the meaning of the word in that language which is dis- uh, derived from the old english word weiss spelled w-i-c-e and it means bendable or pliant and thanks to rick for um him boning me up on my old english i just wasn't around when they talked to old english but thankfully uh, he, i have a native speaker I had in third grade <laughs> right, spanish and old english you could pick whichever one you wanted to do and you, you picked old english so that was convenient for us you know well our winner this month is a new listener and a new nurse practitioner joseph queen he said he's just about to start in the emergency department and was looking for some podcasts to help jumpstart his learning and he found us happy to be found joseph hey joe Time- i'll give you a free course oh, oh my gosh very good that's what you get. boot camp july and december yeah that's joseph will be happy about that we will let we joseph have to give know. him some contact information joe yeah, I got it. I got it. I'll, I'll make sure Joseph knows. Okay, very good. Well, hey, time for this episode's trivia question. Uh, TASER is an acronym. What does it stand for? And what is the neurology-themed name of the company that makes TASER brand devices? Email us your two-part answer in addition to anyone you want to give a shout-out to as well as any feedback or comments about any episode on our, like our new format or having Rick on as a guest to twoviewcast at gmail.com. That's the number two, viewcast at gmail.com. Dot com. Uh, more information on the original Advanced Emergency Medicine Boot Camps, the Emergency Medicine and Acute Care course, or any of our courses are available at the Center for Medical Education website. That's www.ccme.org, www.ccme.org. Uh, Sorry, I lost my train of thought there. I was thinking about my shift tomorrow. Okay, well, uh, yeah, thank you for listening and attending this episode of The Two View. You can subscribe and rate us on Apple iTunes Podcasts. Uh, Google Podcasts, you can't rate us. Spotify, you can give us a star ranking. So uh, help us out with that. Search for Two View Emergency. That's the number Two View Emergency, and it'll come 
right up. Ratings help us climb the charts so that other clinicians like Joseph Queen get some two-view goodness. And if you want YouTube and you want to see the video blog instead, you want to see Rick's fetching <laughs> flannel uh, top that he's wearing here, search for Center for Medical Education. You can catch the video version. Don't forget our website where you can go next level on any of our topics from any of our episodes, including all the papers and sites we referred to today. That's twoview.fireside.fm. Our audio and video engineers are Ricky Bucata and Dave Pett. Show notes are by Meg Dipple. Thank you again for tuning in, friends and EM. Share this podcast with a friend. Share your thoughts via email. And thanks again for sharing your time with us on The Two View today. Rick, we'd be honored if you'd close out with your traditional send-off. Oh, you know, it's Rick Bucata signing off. Thanks for listening and bye for now. <laughs> bye for now. Bye for now. Don't tase me. <laughs>